0: Good morning to everybody. Daniel chapter 6 is printed in your bulletin, and we'll read the whole chapter. It's uh, one of the more familiar stories from the Bible. If you've been to Sunday school, or if you've been to uh, vacation Bible school, or if you've been around the church much at all, you've probably heard this story. But here we go, Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps would give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom The precepts and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And then he got on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. And then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, He pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction you have signed, but he makes his petition three times a day. And then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored until the sun went down to rescue him. And then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. And then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. I think that's pretty interesting. One, one writer noted, the best way to have a good night is to keep a good conscience that we may lie down in peace. And then another writer pointed out that Daniel might have gotten a better sleep than Darius that night. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And he came near to the den where Daniel was He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, who, by the way, was the man who signed his death warrant. This is the man who sentenced him to execution. He responds to him, O king, live forever. He responds to him with honor. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And then the king was exceedingly glad. And he commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, And those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they and their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke their bones in pieces. One author I read about this chapter said that this is an example of how uh, brutal the the laws of the time were, the, the justice of the time. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, it says that families are not to be punished for the sins of fathers. And yet, here Darius just scoops up anybody he can and throws them into the lion's pit. And then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. And he wrote this proclamation. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. It'll even outlast the kingdom of Darius. And he's acknowledging that in this proclamation. Daniel's God delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, during the reign, and during the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And that word prospered there actually is strictly translated passed through, or even you could translate it passed over. And so there might even be a a calling back to Israel's history there uh, with their history of the Passover. So, Daniel in the lion's den, this is the part of the book of Daniel that everybody remembers most. If you if you mention the book of Daniel to people, they're probably going to say, oh yeah, that story about the guy in the lion's den. It's one of the more familiar stories from the Bible, from the entire Bible. And uh, kids, raise your hand, kids, if you already knew the story of Daniel in the lion's den before we even read it today. Did you know it? See, I, I figure most of them probably pretty know it, uh, know it pretty well. In the storybooks, though, when you read the, the picture book Bibles... Most of the time, in the storybooks, Daniel is depicted as a young man. But actually, at the time of this story, he was quite old. He had already served in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And that's uh, recorded in chapters 1 through 4, which we've looked at in previous weeks. He then served in the court of Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son. That's recorded in chapter 5. Now, in chapter 6, he's serving in the court of Darius the Mede. And then it says that he also served during the court of Cyrus the Persian. And so that's four different Babylonian, Assyrian, Medan, Persian nations that he's served. Four different sets of governments that he has served. Uh, Some of the people who write about this estimate that he served more than 60 years in the court of this foreign country of Babylon. As I said, over multiple foreign administrations. Over several decades, it seems like it would be impossible to retain his Jewish identity at that time, for that length of time, doesn't it? For, to maintain that Jewish heritage. In chapter 1, he tells a little bit about how he went about that. And then in the chapters between 1 and 6, uh, it, it tells about the effects that his Jewish heritage had while he was living in Babylon. But if you were in, I was thinking this week, if you're an Israelite at that time, maybe you watched the career of this Daniel guy. And you see him serving over 60 years in the government of the people that have you captured in exile and won't let you go home, even if you wanted to, which apparently a lot of them did not want to. But even if you wanted to go home, this government says, nope, you're Babylonians now. And you might look at the the 60-year career of this Daniel guy and you you might think, was Daniel even interested in going back? And is he, is he really even helping us at all? I mean, there might have been some confusion at that point. It seems like uh, Daniel took Jeremiah 29 verses 4 through 7 very seriously. Brad alluded to this very, in the first sermon on the book of Daniel several weeks ago. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take take wives and have sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply here, and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have you, uh, where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. And nobody seems to have taken that more seriously than this guy Daniel, and yet. The story is one of faithfulness. We're not talking about a guy who went off the rails here and people are looking at him and saying, well, he's more Babylonian than Jewish. I mean, he somehow managed in the midst of a foreign and hostile culture to retain his, his truth, his goodness, his beauty, his purity. He, he, was managed, he managed to continue following after God even in the midst of all of that. He seems to have taken every aspect of his Hebrew faith very seriously. The, the history of God with his people. The promises that God had made for his people. He seems to take all of that very seriously. Well, there are a lot of different ways we could look at this story. I'm sure that over the years you've, you've probably heard several different takes on this story. Of Daniel in the lion's den in chapter 6. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus in on the three fears in this passage. There are three fears. Daniel chapter 6 can be divided into three people who might have been motivated by fear. And the first one is in, chapter, is in verse 2. Was Darius afraid? That's What is the first thing that we learn about him? What's the first thing that we learn about his character? In verse 2, it says that he was... Uh, he was afraid of suffering loss. He wanted to avoid trouble. And so he hatched this elaborate political plan with layers of administration uh, to help him avoid loss, to avoid trouble. That reminded me of another leader that I recently read about. The last leader of the Aztec Empire, Moctezuma II. He became the emperor of the Aztec Empire in 1502 by consolidating this empire that stretched from Mexico, across Mexico from sea to sea. The capital city of Tecnoctitlan had a population of over 200,000 people, which was larger than any city in Western Europe at that time. Moctezuma, over the years, had proven himself to be a very capable and confident military commander, and the Aztec culture was very sophisticated in its language, math, architecture, and astronomy. They even invented chocolate. And so we culturally are standing on their shoulders even today as far as chocolate goes. (laughs) However, when the Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés landed in Mexico in 1519, Montezuma seemed frozen in his tracks. Cortés landed with, this was the power of his force, he landed with 500 men and 13 horses. That's what he had. Moctezuma had an army of thousands, tens of thousands at his disposal if he just said the word. And yet he refused to engage the Spanish. Instead of an overwhelming army of soldiers, he sent a, a series of magicians and gifts to distract Cortes and try to dissuade him from continuing his invasion. Historians have long debated Moctezuma's response. Was he trying to orchestrate some kind of master plan? Some kind of slow game that ultimately backfired on him? Or was he simply frozen in his tracks, not knowing what to do? Not knowing how to respond? Either way, his hesitation undid him. And in just two years, the entire Aztec empire had been wiped away. I find it interesting that Darius built this elaborate, expensive political system to avoid trouble, to to avoid loss. What kind of trouble was he trying to avoid? It doesn't say, we can speculate. Was he trying to prevent a revolt by kind of keeping things compartmentalized and organized and keeping various people happy or under control? Was he trying to insulate himself from criticism, you know, by building layers of government well, see, Darius is not, I'm not the problem. It's the, you know, oh my goodness, look at that guy down the food chain. That's the problem. Um, maybe he was trying to, 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 to slide blame onto other people. We don't know. Was he trying to build accountability and prevent corruption? Maybe he was tired of, of losing, uh, losing money to corrupt people beneath him and he wanted to build some system to where it would increase his wealth Maybe he was just overconfident. Maybe he thought, well, why am I doing all the work of running this empire? What if I just got all these guys to do the work and I can just kind of coast? What if I can just enjoy being king while other people do the work?" He did all of that to avoid trouble. But then trouble came anyway. He had hoped to put Daniel in charge of the entire kingdom. But then he was forced to sign Daniel's death warrant the very thing that he wanted to avoid came to him in a way that he never anticipated. And that happens, doesn't it? I think we've all come close enough to circumstances like, we. I've never been the king of an empire, but I have tried to prevent things that then resurface in, in ugly ways and ways I, I never could have anticipated. And I'd imagine that that's not, uh, that's not an experience that's unique to me. I had a great conversation this past week with somebody about how power corrupts. It seems like nearly any time someone is given adoration and unchecked power, how does that story end? It ends with injustice. It ends with tragedy. It ends with the collapse of that person. That person collapses from within. Maybe that's what we're seeing with Darius. Darius the problem is when people collapse in a circumstance like that, they tend to take other people around them with them. And it causes a collapse of others too. Well, whatever Darius was afraid of, whatever trouble he was trying to prevent, he hit a home run when he appointed Daniel. Daniel was literally perfect at his job, which leads us to the second group of people who might have been motivated by fear. And that's all of Daniel's fellow leaders. What are these other leaders afraid of? What made the 120 satraps and two other high officials attack Daniel? Why were they so jealous of him? Well, for one thing, he was excellent. They tried. They tried to find dirt on him. They went and, and did all their homework on Daniel. They, tried, they, they couldn't accuse him of being corrupt or lazy. And the fact that they felt threatened by that actually tells us a lot about them, doesn't it? Perhaps he was preventing them from being corrupt and skimming a little bit of Darius' taxes for themselves. And on top of that, Daniel was also an outsider who made himself uh, visibly different in terms of his food, his drink, his dress, and the other aspects of his life. That's all recorded in chapter 1. Perhaps you remember that from when we were looking at chapter 1 together. Notice in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Notice how they accused Daniel. They point out his foreignness. They call it out. Now, Daniel, got to, Daniel's been living, uh, not just living in Babylon. He's been a high government official in Babylon for half a century at this point. But they're still keen to point out Daniel, that foreigner, he's the problem. He's the one who's doing this. So their thinking is something along these lines. Who is this weirdo? This guy who refuses to look like us and dress like us and play, play the games that we play. Um, and why should this weirdo be our superior? And in doing so, they, they have no regard for king. They don't, they're not really honoring King Darius. It's fake honor. They're not really looking out for the good of the kingdom, which is their job. They're faking it. Who are they really looking out for? They're really only interested in their own interests. And one writer put it this way. In this example, we observe the natural consequence of envy. And we should diligently notice this. Since nothing is more tempting than gliding from one vice to a worse one, the envious man loses all sense of justice while attempting every scheme for injuring his adversary. Envy starts us down a road of injustice that it is hard to get off of. Proverbs 27 puts it this way. Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? Or Proverbs chapter 6. Jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. Maybe you remember this story from Louisa May Alcott's book, Little Women. Joe the main character protagonist in the story, pours her heart and soul into writing a book. And then one night, Joe and Beth have the privilege, the opportunity to go to the theater. But their youngest sister, Amy, I'm sorry, Amy, you have to stay home. And Amy gets so mad, so jealous of her sisters being able to go to the theater that she takes Joe's book manuscript and sets it on fire and burns it. That's what jealousy does, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's, when we're jealous, that's our reaction. Our feeling, and this is, this is Amy's feeling, and I, I'm sorry to say I can relate. When we're jealous, our feeling is, if I can't be happy, then you're not going to be happy either. If I'm going down, I'm taking you with me. That's how, that's how we do. That's what we do when we're being jealous. How often do we feel that way? If I'm unhappy, then guess what? You're going to be unhappy too. I'm taking you with me. It seems like that's how Daniel's fellow leaders felt. If we can't have the king's power and favor, then you're not going to have it either. And they sought occasion against him and they could not find it. Daniel was flawless, so they had to invent a charge against him. And notice that he's, he's actually basically being accused of heresy here. They're setting up, a, 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 this is a religious situation. They're accusing him of worshiping the wrong god you've already seen how that ends up the true god is vindicated and darius is humbled darius is not god daniel's god is that's how this plays out but notice that they knew daniel's character and they tried to use it against him they knew exactly how he would react to this whole situation they knew that he wouldn't stop praying they also knew the king's character didn't they they knew the king's ego and they knew that if they came to him and said, we just invented a new piece of legislation, we had a great idea. What if we did this? They knew that the king would say, interesting, that's a good idea. Let's do it. Um, they knew Darius's ego and that the new law would appeal to him. And they used this whole situation to concoct this thing, to take someone down because of jealousy. They knew the nature of Assyrian law. I mean, they were good lawyers, Right? They knew the nature of the law, and they knew that once this thing is signed, it's done. We've got him. And that's exactly what they did. Whatever it was that they were afraid of, the Assyrian leaders used all of those things to make a trap for Daniel. And that leads us to the third person who might have been afraid. Was Daniel afraid? How did he react to all this? We don't know if he was afraid. I mean, it's hard, to, it's hard to believe that he felt serene as he was being lowered into a pit of lions, you know? I would expect that that would make your heart rate increase, you know? Your anxiety level probably escalates at least a little while you're being lowered into the lion's pit, okay? So we shouldn't think of Daniel as like this um, sort of Zen, you know, master who's lowering into the pit and he's just unaffected by it. Um, We should, I mean, if I had to guess, the story doesn't say, if I had to guess, Daniel was afraid. I'd be afraid. But what he didn't do was waver. He didn't waver. He didn't change. He continued praying right on schedule. He had a prayer schedule. Have you thought about that before? He had a prayer schedule that was so regular that it was known to the other officials in the government, and they knew that they could use it against him. I mean, like, is that our testimony? I mean, are the people that, I mean, it's not. Are the, the people that know me don't think, well, I know that, I sure know that Brian's going to pray these three times a day. Um, so Daniel, he, he continues praying right on schedule. He doesn't waver even once. Verse 10, it says something interesting. He prays toward Jerusalem. He opens the windows of his of his upper floor and he prays toward Jerusalem. Why? Is this like a praying toward Mecca thing? Um, I mean, the thing is, actually, God's not in Jerusalem anymore. Once the exile occurs, the glory of God had been in the temple in Jerusalem and the glory of God had left the temple and the temple had been raised, torn down to the ground to where not one stone was on top of the other. Jerusalem wasn't where God was anymore. So when when Daniel's praying toward Jerusalem, it's not what he's praying to. It's what he's praying about. And here we are 50, 60 years into his service in the government of Babylon. He's praying toward Jerusalem because he is continually, continually praying for the homecoming of Israel. Even as an old man serving his third of four foreign heads of state, his prayer was for his people's return home. That's remarkable. He's faithful, consistent, keeps going, won't be stopped. Notice what Daniel doesn't do in reaction to all this. I mean, we can. it says that all of the high officials went in and they talked to the king and they said, hey, we're unanimous in this new uh, legislation we'd like to pass. We assume that Daniel wasn't really in that. I mean, they probably left him out of that discussion, you know. He probably would have raised his hand and said, I'm, I'm actually not in favor of that, you know. Um, and so he hears about this law. It says in, in verse uh, 10 that Daniel heard about the law and then he went and prayed. But notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't object to the law. He doesn't march into the king's uh, chamber and say, You know, proclaim his own virtue and innocence. He doesn't criticize the law as unjust or unfair. Instead, he just uses his trial later on as an opportunity to testify about the faithfulness of God. And that way it reminds us of the story of the apostles in Acts. That when they're brought before uh, Roman rulers, people who have the power of life and death over them, and they say... Is it true that you worship Jesus? Do you think that Jesus is God? That he's the the Messiah? They don't say, I'm innocent. They don't say, this law is unjust. They say, let me tell you about Jesus. The Jesus that you just mentioned, I'll tell you some things about him that I think you ought to know. And they preach the gospel to Roman authorities who have the power of life and death over them. That's remarkable. Notice in verse 16 that the king is already aware of Daniel's testimony. It's almost like Daniel didn't even need to tell him about it. He's aware of it. He may, may, the, uh, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. He knows about Daniel's service to his God because of Daniel's consistent faithfulness. He knew about Daniel's God, but then he still nonetheless had the audacity to put himself in the place of God by saying nobody's allowed to pray Or ask anybody for anything except for me for 30 days. He still had the audacity to do that. So it calls out, Daniel's story calls out something that's obvious throughout this whole story. But we've got to call it out. We've got to say it right here. There are some laws that should not be obeyed. It's obvious and we know that. Uh, We instinctively know that. Yes, God tells us to honor and obey authorities in Romans 13, Titus 3, Hebrews 13, 1 Peter 2, and elsewhere. But there are some laws that should not be obeyed. In every nation, every nation, apart from the eternal reign of Christ the King, there will be some laws that are unjust, that go against Scripture. And from Daniel, we learn that sometimes we need to disobey the law. Not always. Not always. We don't, and we don't need to fight and proclaim our innocence. Or sometimes we just need to simply disobey the law. That's the example that we have here. Now, some of us, we don't need to be reminded to uh, that we don't have to obey the law all that often. Some of us have a little bit of a, a rebel streak, and so they don't. We don't need a lot of a lot of. Uh, influence to say there are some laws that, that, that are not worth obeying. But other people, like my wife, for example, are very predisposed to honor the authorities. She's not in here. She's in the nursery today, so. <laughs> Don't tell her I said that. Uh, for some of us, it will be harder to follow Daniel's example than it will be for others. Some of us, it comes a little bit more easily. For some of us, it, uh, it's harder. But for all of us, we should take note. For all of us, no matter who you are, no matter what situation you find yourself in, you must take note. Don't forget this. If you learn one thing from Daniel chapter 6, you need to know that worshiping the true God is dangerous. It's dangerous. Make no mistake. Don't ever think otherwise. It will cost you something. It's going to cost you something. As 21st century Americans, we can be lulled, By the relative safety that we live in, worshiping God, being here today, being spotted here today, doesn't threaten our life, our livelihood, our relationships, or our happiness very often. But we are, we need to acknowledge, we are the 1% of world history when it comes to worshiping God. We are the 1% of world history. One pastor in our presbytery put it this way. At a presidential inauguration, for example, we hear a number of those prayers which are so often prayed at at political gatherings. And no one risks his or her life to offer such prayers. They are pious demonstrations, in in some cases almost political speeches made by people of very different religious convictions, but none of them is the sort of prayer that would make somebody an enemy of the state. Daniel's prayer, he writes, is nothing like those formalities. Altogether different. Contrast our situation with that of another pastor in our presbytery. At our last regional meeting in Bellingham, Washington, I had the pleasure of meeting the new assistant pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Issaquah, Washington. His name is Shiv Mutukumar, and he's from India. Several years ago, he became the first person in his family to become a Christian. He he since has studied at Covenant Seminary and has become a pastor. When he has returned to India since his conversion, many members of his family, including his own father, have refused to talk with him or even to see him when he goes back to visit his family. Becoming a Christian has cost him a lot. And here he is trying to serve Christ in the Pacific Northwest alongside of us. Make no mistake, if you faithfully worship the true God, it will eventually, it will cost you something. If nothing else, there will be a showdown between the idols of your heart and the living God. If nothing else, there'll be a showdown between those two gods, the fake ones and the real one. One of them will have to go. Which one will it be? Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, And walk the path I walked after me. And if you aren't ready to do that, then you're not ready for Jesus. You might want a friend or a therapist or Santa Claus, but you're not looking for Jesus in a situation like that. So that's what we have here in Daniel chapter 6. There are two immovable laws colliding here in Daniel chapter 6. Two immovable laws. The law of the Medes and the Persians and the law of God. It's a cosmic showdown on a dusty street at high noon. <whistles> <laughs> on the one hand, you've got the law of the Medes and the Persians, a law that cannot be revoked. Three times in this chapter, that phrase is repeated. No matter what, this law cannot be revoked. And on the other hand, there's the law of God, which is summarized in a passage that Daniel would have known well and would have meditated on often. It's the, it's the uh, It's the constitution in some sense of the people of Israel. Now this is the commandment. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it that you might fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and commandments which I command you all the days of your life that your days may be long. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And that's a passage that any faithful Israelite would have had memorized, that most faithful Israelites would have recited daily, meditated on daily. Daniel knew that law and he kept it and it was on his heart at least three times a day as he looked out his window and prayed for the restoration of the people of Israel. So the two laws go head to head here in Daniel 6. Who will win the showdown? Well, you know the answer. God's law, his love and faithfulness will outlast any law that Darius or any other ruler can create. How in the world is it possible? to trust in God in a situation like this. I don't know that anybody here has been lowered into a lion's pit, but I bet that some people here feel like they have. Justly, unjustly, fairly, unfairly, I know that there are some people here who might as well have been lowered into a lion's pit. How is it possible? Surely Daniel didn't anticipate the miracle. I mean, he's probably not lowered into the pit thinking to himself, Oh, don't worry. You know, these lions won't be hungry tonight. You know, don't worry, God will save me. He's not, he doesn't have some cavalier attitude toward this. In the end, it's Darius, not Daniel, who is humbled. And in verses twenty-seven to 25 to 27, they preserve for all time what King Darius proclaimed about Daniel's God. It's not just a local proclamation. He proclaims it to every tribe, tongue, and nation. He concedes the battle. One writer commented on Darius' decree, Though this decree goes far, it does not go far enough. Had he done right and come up to his present convictions, he would have commanded all men not only to tremble in fear before Daniel's God, but to love him and trust in him, to forsake the service of their idols and to worship him only, and to call upon him as Daniel did. But idolatry has been so long and deeply rooted that it was not taken away by the edicts of princes, nor by any power less than that which went along with the glorious gospel of Christ. But he does call on them to fear God and to tremble before him. What does it mean to fear God and tremble before him? It means to take his power seriously. Because in verse 26, for example, Darius himself says, this God, the God of Daniel is alive and he's powerful and he's powerful forever, even to the end. And he is a deliverer, and he has performed signs and wonders to prove it, of which this survival of Daniel, this salvation of Daniel, is one. So we can learn a lot. We've looked at the three fears in this chapter. We can learn a lot from the various characters in Daniel 6. We can ask ourselves, how often do I follow the the pattern of Darius? How often do do we let our pride lead us into sticky and compromising situations? We can ask ourselves, how often do I follow the pattern of the satraps and officials? How often do we let our jealousy make us resent others and spoil things for them? Or we can ask ourselves the question, how often do we follow the pattern of Daniel? If a bunch of satraps investigated our lives... Would they be able to bring any charges against us or would they have to make something up? Would they find us to be hard workers? Would they find us to be honest or corrupt? Would they find that we treated other people right? We can ask ourselves, how often do we follow the pattern of Daniel's faith? Would the the satraps who watched you know that your faith was non-negotiable? Would they know that about you? Would they be certain, so certain that you would follow God's law even against the law of Darius. We can learn a lot from all the different characters in Daniel chapter six, but it would be a huge mistake. It would be a huge mistake to think that the main character in this story is Darius or that it's the satraps and officials or even that the main character in this story is Daniel because it's not. This story is 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 meant to accomplish more than just making us into good people like Daniel instead of bad people like Darius and all his folk. This story is meant to accomplish more. The main character in this story is Daniel's God. And the main purpose of this story, the reason why it was recorded and passed down to us is so that, why? So that we could emulate Daniel's example? No, This story was given to us so that we would believe in Daniel's God. That's why we we have this story. Daniel's God is the God who saves. That is the whole point of the story. Whatever you do, don't miss the fact that Daniel's God is the God who saves. You should believe in the God of Daniel because the God of Daniel saves his people. He restores them even from death. That's what this whole passage is about. Will he always save them from the lions? Well, yes and no. No in this sense. Daniel's God does not promise to deliver us from death. Whether by lions or other means, we all have to face death at some point. But Daniel's God does promise to save us even from death itself. How can we be sure? How can we have confidence that the God who rescued Daniel will rescue us too? Here's how. Because God God works in patterns. He's taught us those patterns in His Word so that we can learn what He is like and how He works. And when we read His Word, we're meant to learn the patterns and watch for certain things so that we will recognize them and they'll be familiar to us when we see them again. So, what is the pattern described here? Listen to the arc of this chapter. There was a perfect man who was above accusation. He was hated by those who were with him and sentenced to death. A stone was placed on the mouth of his tomb to ensure that he would not exit. God sent an angel, and that righteous man was delivered from death. Can you hear the pattern that's established in Daniel chapter 6? Can you see how this is anticipating something to come? Can you hear the echoes of the greater Daniel? Even Jesus Christ himself, who would ultimately deliver all of God's people from the lions of condemnation. It brings a whole new meaning to verse 26. Look at verse 26. He is alive. And he's powerful forever. Even to the end. So in, we read Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, and we are meant to believe the testimony of Darius the king. Fear the God of Daniel. Take his power seriously. And know this, the God of Daniel is a deliverer. He has proven it over and over again. In the life of Daniel, in the person of Jesus Christ, and in the lives of many people here in this room today, he has proven that he is the delivering God. And so, We read Daniel 6, and we're supposed to recognize the pattern of Daniel. Hear what God has done here. Learn what kind of God he is and build your faith on that. His promises are the law above all laws. His his promises are the law that will truly never be revoked, no matter what. Amen.